Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Playing Favorites, What Will Campbell Learned? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 9th, 2012. In the epistle for this week, in James chapter 2, verse 1, we read, my sisters and brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. When we play favorites, writes James, we discriminate and become judges. And when we judge, we've put ourselves in the place of God, which is idolatry. Of course, we judge, discriminate, and play favorites for many reasons. Race, religion, gender, intelligence, politics, and nationality all come to mind. James uses the example of Christians who favored the rich over the poor. And so the irony is not lost on him. He writes, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who slander the noble name of him to whom you belong? In the Gospel this week, we see how Jesus accepted everyone indiscriminately. A desperate mother brought her sick daughter to Jesus, but there was a problem. She was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, and thus to a Jew who was careful about ritual purity, she was an unclean Gentile. Indeed, Jesus tests her by saying that his primary mission is to the Jew. But this religious and ethnic outsider persisted so much that Jesus praises her as a paradigm of faith. He similarly touches the untouchable in the healing of the deaf and dumb man. Mark chapter 7. Gary Wills puts it perfectly in his book, What Jesus Meant. God in his lavish and indiscriminate love never excludes people because they are unclean, unworthy, or disrespectable. Nor should we. Wills writes, No outcasts were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Playing favorites is easy. Loving indiscriminately is hard. Will Campbell, born in 1924, found this out the hard way. In his two memoirs, Forty Acres and a Goat, and Brother to a Dragonfly, he describes his own experience of learning to love without limits. And for the record, I would count these two, count these as two of the most important books in my own Christian pilgrimage. Campbell was born and raised in the rural and very poor deep south of Mississippi. He was ordained by family members at a local Baptist church when he was 17. And in a delightfully improbable life, he played a central role as an activist and agitator on behalf of American, African Americans. But to leave it at that would badly misrepresent his story. <clears throat> After serving in World War II, Campbell studied at Tulane, Wake Forest, and Yale. 
After a short stint as a pastor in Louisiana, he served as director of religious life at the University of Mississippi, but left after two years because his controversial views on race attracted death threats. He then did a similar stint for the National Council of Churches, working with most of the civil rights luminaries. In 1957, for example, Campbell was one of four people who escorted the nine black students who tried to integrate Little Rock Central High School. And he was the only white person to attend the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference by the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. And as you might imagine, the hate mail from the white right poured in. As he matured, Campbell had the uneasy feeling that he hated those redneck bigots who hated. He discovered how easy it was to play favorites and to oppress the oppressors. Strange, he thought, how he enjoyed thinking that God hated all the same people that he hated. Campbell realized that he had created God in his own image and after his own personal and political likeness. Through a series of encounters with unlikely teachers, Campbell came to admit that after 20 years in ministry, he had become little more than a doctrinaire social activist, which, he had to admit, was different than being a follower of Jesus. The key? Campbell writes, I came to understand the nature of tragedy, and one who understands the nature of tragedy can never take sides. Campbell saw how he had played favorites and taken sides. He had subverted the indiscriminate love of God for all people without conditions, limits, or exceptions into a ministry of what he called liberal sophistication. Acting upon these convictions, he started sipping whiskey with the Ku Klux Klan. He did their funerals and weddings, and even befriended the Grand Dragon of North Carolina, J.R. Bob Jones. When they were sick, he emptied their bedpans. And then the hate mail came from the liberal left. In a 1976 interview for an oral history that he gave to the University of Southern Mississippi, he joked, It's been a long time since I got a hate letter from the right. Now they come from the left. Since God doesn't play favorites, Campbell concluded, neither should we. The necessary connection between claiming to love God and proving that we love our fellow human beings became so embedded in the early Christian traditions that this teaching is repeated almost verbatim by Paul in Romans and Galatians, by James in chapter 2, verse 8, and most memorably, by John in 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his own brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. I don't know if I could make nice with the KKK like Will Campbell, but he surely points us in the right direction of indiscriminate love that doesn't play favorites. 
It's a way of life commended long, long ago by St. Maximus the Confessor, who lived from 580 to 662. He wrote, Blessed is the one who can love all people equally, always thinking good of everyone. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a new novel by Julian Barnes. The title of the novel, The Sense of an Ending. New York, not 2011, 163 pages. In this, his newest novel, the British writer Julian Barnes explores the relationship between personal memory, self-identity, aging, and, by the end of the story, deep regret. To some extent, we are who we remember ourselves to be. And as the story unfolds, we learn just how problematic memory is. Memory can be self-serving, whether consciously or unconsciously. It's selective, partial, even involuntary. Sometimes we drag up memories to apportion blame. There are some things we can never forget, and others we can never remember, with no obvious reason for either case. The protagonist, Tony Webster, struggles to remember rightly about his last 40 years, but it's not easy, even as the very first paragraph of the book foretells. He says, This isn't something I actually saw, but what you end up remembering isn't always the same as what you witnessed. In fact, two times in the novel, Tony wonders whether history is not, quote, that certainty produced at the point where the imperfections of memory meet the inadequacies of documentation. But there's one document that Tony can't deny. Late in the story, he's presented with a toxic letter that he wrote long ago, but had forgotten. This letter from his younger self shocked his older self. All I could plead, he says, was that I had been its author then, but was not its author now. Indeed, I didn't recognize that part of myself from which the letter came. But perhaps this, too, was simply further self-deception. This letter marks the movement of the story from the mere vagaries of memory and aging to an acute sense of regret and remorse for Tony. And so, when you get older, you become less certain about who you really are. Tony senses an ending, not in the temporal sense, but in the sense that he cannot expect anything other than an uncertain identity, whose main characteristic is remorse, and about which he can do nothing. The author is Julian Barnes. The title, The Sense of an Ending. For movies this week, I review a film called Searching for Sugar Man, 2012. This documentary film about a Detroit folk musician named Rodriguez opened the 2012 Sundance Film Festival. 
and it's guaranteed to knock the socks off of any music-loving baby boomer. Rodriguez produced two albums that were commercial flops before falling off the radar of anyone who had ever happened to notice him. In 1970, the album Cold Fact, and then in 1971, Coming from Reality. With low sales and no buzz, Sussex Records dropped him like a hot potato. So Rodriguez quit performing, did demolition construction labor, and lived in the same dilapidated house in Detroit for the next 40 years. Meanwhile, unknown to Rodriguez, a label in Australia bought the rights to his work and released his music, which then went platinum in South Africa and bestowed on him a cult status as an icon of social protest music. But exactly who was the obscure man behind the powerful music? Most people assume that he was dead. Two fans tracked it all down, and this film is the result. The movie features numerous tracks from his two original albums. Searching for Sugar Man. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Cardinal John Henry Newman. Newman lived from 1801 to 1890. He joined the Catholic Church in 1845 and was made a cardinal by Pope Leo XIII in 1879. The title of the poem, The Sign of the Cross. Whene'er across this sinful flesh of mine I draw the holy sign, all good thoughts stir within me and renew their slumbering strength divine, till there springs up a courage high and true to suffer and to do. And who shall say, but hateful spirits around, for their brief hour unbound, shudder to see and wail their overthrow, while on far heathen ground some lonely saint hails the fresh odor, though its source he cannot know. The Sign of the Cross, Cardinal John Henry Newman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 9th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.